The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? So it's been a month since Joe Biden became president, and in that time, he's spoken to President Xi of China on the phone. The day after their phone call, Biden warned senators that... If we don't get moving, they are going to eat our lunch. He was referring to China's infrastructure project, its spending on the environment, which we've done a previous episode on, and, quote, a whole range of other things. China's infrastructure is very impressive. It's what allows Chunyun, the spring migration for Chinese New Year that happens every year, where migrant workers from their cities go back to their parental homes. In normal times, that's around 3 billion trips made in the 40 days surrounding Chinese New Year, using trains, roads and less so domestic flights, but there is the option, which just really underlines the extent of China's domestic connectedness that has really sprung up in the last few decades. But is it really a point of envy? And certainly is China eating America's lunch by spending so much on infrastructure? Well, joining me to discuss on this episode is the economist and author George Magnus, who's also a research associate for Oxford University and SOAS. George, to start with, I gave an example of uh, Chinese New Year in my introduction, but I wondered if you could just paint a picture for people who haven't been to China, just how extensive China's traditional infrastructure is. So I'm talking about things like trains, planes, roads, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, most people who go there for the first few times, first time or first few times, I think are, are truly wowed by the... What, what they're going to bowl over, really, by this, the scale and size and connectivity of, of Chinese infrastructure. And, you know, and it's borne out in some of the sort of numbers which certainly the Chinese government likes to kind of trot up, which are, to be fair, you know, a reflection of what it's, of what it's accomplished. So, you know, it has the one that most people kind of seize on, it really is, China's high-speed rail network, right? They have over 30,000 kilometers of high-speed track, which is about two-thirds of the world's total of high-speed track. They have um, 149 or 150,000 kilometers of highways, which is about twice what it is in the United States. I mean, the Chinese road network as a whole is a little bit smaller, but the highway network is pretty big. The Three Gorges Dam is the world's largest hydro project, hydropower project. Just a couple of years ago, they finished the world's longest sea bridge, which goes from Hong Kong to Macau. It's about um, 19 miles long. It has, you know, 9 million civil aviation routes. It's got over 250 airports with the word international in it and so on and so forth. So it's, it's pretty big. 
I remember seeing that bridge being built. I was in Hong Kong in 2015, and at the time, you know, it was quite poetic actually because from Hong Kong, what you could see is a stretch of sea between it and Macau, and the bridge was half built, so it was a bridge leading to nowhere. <laughs> but it was massive because it must have been so far in the distance, but I could still see it from land. And and now, of course, that has been completed, and cars are driving over it, and there are undersea tunnels as well. I think that kind of speaks to the speed with which this has happened. So why has it changed so fast, so much? In the ten years to two thousand and eight, the capital stock. I mean, it includes private sector investment as well as infrastructure investment in all the things that we've been talking about. But the capital stock in China went up by about seven and a half trillion dollars in those ten years. But in the last ten years, which is to say from two thousand and eight, which is when the financial crisis happened, so that's a really, really important cutoff point because lots of things change in two thousand and eight. But from two thousand and eight until let's say last year or two thousand and nineteen, just before the pandemic, the capital stock went up by almost twice as much. As it did in the previous decade, so about fourteen trillion dollars. So this infrastructure splurge in China, actually, it's not that the Chinese didn't build infrastructure before the year two thousand. It's just that they built an awful lot in the following ten years, and then an awful lot on top of that in the last ten or twelve years. So it's been an extraordinary accomplishment in some respects, but also. An extraordinary worry in other respects because it's almost as though you know it, it, it sounds strange, but you can have too much of a good thing. And with regards to infrastructure spending, I think China has, during the last decade, really gone kind of overboard. Let's get to that the the going overboard in just a second. You mentioned two thousand eight being the cutoff point. That obviously that's a financial crisis. Can you talk a little bit more about why that year is so pivotal? Yes. So. Before two thousand and eight, so it's true that China's leaders were worried about the direction that the economy was going in. They thought that the the economy was too focused on its export sector, that there wasn't enough、uh, kind of development going on in、uh, the home economy, shall we say? And、um, Premier Wen Jiabao, who、uh, stepped down from office in Uh, well, he actually, he said it in 2007, which I think was soon, soon before he stepped down. We talked about how unbalanced the Chinese economy was, and that it needed a makeover. 2008 came, and I don't know whether it was pl- it certainly wasn't planned in this way. But even before we knew in the West that we were on the cusp of the world's, you know, biggest financial crisis since the 1920s. China sensed it because、uh, we knew that there was something odd going on because hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of workers were sent home from factories in China's coastal provinces to the countryside. Migrant workers went home, in other words, were sent home and told not to come back. The export industries basically dried up, and even before we were aware of the scale of the financial crisis, the government. Announced a at the time it was about fourteen percent, one four percent of national income, a stimulus program designed to basically address what they could sense was a, a major economic downturn. And、um, in that program, it wasn't really 
comprised of there were tax cuts and things like that, but most of that program was provision of lending for the purposes of building infrastructure. So that's why 2008 is such an important year because that's when China's, uh, I was going to say it's flirtation, but its inclination to, to spend a lot of money on infrastructure really kicks off in a major way in 2008. And actually, and it continues for long after it's really needed. And that's all state directed. So someone somewhere up high is thinking infrastructure-led growth is what we're going for. Why has that decision been made? Is it, as from your opinion as an economist, is it a good way to go down? Well, that, that's a good question because we, for the last few years, a lot of economists have been wondering why China's addiction to infrastructure and to credit to fund that infrastructure, why that has been so almost obsessive. Why, why mm. hasn't the government tried to do other things? Because we are seeing some of the, or many of the downsides of this, these programs, which include bad debts, debt servicing difficulties, uncommercial projects, waste, congestion, and so on and so forth. So the answer is not easy to come up with, to be honest with you. The, we would have wished that actually China might have embarked on different types of economic reforms in order to try to stimulate consumption growth, to stimulate the provision of services, to open up the economy to uh, more competition in these areas. But actually, it's kind of stuck with what it knows. And some of that, I think, comes about because of the rather peculiar way in which China manages its economy. I, I mean, peculiar, not in odd, but unique, really. With Chinese characteristics. Yes. Well, until now, I mean, not during the pandemic, I mean, because it stopped for that year. But up until the pandemic, China always set... A, an unrealistically high growth target for, for GDP, for the economy. And whereas in the Western world and in much of the emerging world, we calculate GDP after everybody has spent money. So, you know, consumers, companies, governments, we tot it up at the end of the year and we say, this is how much GDP went up or down by. But in China, it works differently. You start off with a target for GDP. And then if you don't hit that target or if it doesn't look like you're going to hit that target, somebody, in this case, it happens to be local and provincial governments, step in to fill the gap and make sure that that target is met. And it's usually by building infrastructure. Which leads to, you know, a burgeoning debt problem, as you've written about extensively. Can you talk a little bit about just how serious and extensive this debt problem is? Yeah, it's quite a big problem. I mean, at the we can calculate it in different ways, but basically as of last year, I would say China's broadly defined debt to GDP was over 300%, maybe 320% of GDP. I mean, everybody's debt went up last year because of the pandemic, but um, it's quite high for a country of China's income per head, uh, which is about 10 or $11,000. And I think the problem is that, you know, when credit continues to grow each year faster than GDP, obviously you're adding to the stock of debt year by year by year. And as I said before, I think the, the problem that a lot of us see in China isn't that this is something which is necessarily going to blow up tomorrow. Most of the debt is denominated by 
is denominated in local currency, in other words, in yuan, and it's owed by Chinese borrowers to Chinese lenders. So this is not really a foreign debt problem. But countries can get into difficulties because of domestic debt as well. So, you know, the financial crisis in America in 2008 was a domestic debt crisis. The Japanese financial crisis in 1989-1990 was a domestic currency crisis. And the problem with having too much debt eventually is somebody has to pay for it. So either somebody's taxes have to pay for it or somebody's balance sheet gets constrained and they can't really spend money on other things or something happens to essentially slow down economic growth. So even if there isn't a banking crisis in China, which there might not be because no banks are really going, big banks are going to be allowed to fail, then, you know, the dead weight of debt basically, you know, will hang over uh, China's growth prospects for, for quite a long time. George, this might come across as a very stupid question, but, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it because that is domestic debt that China has been able to keep up borrowing? As in, how is it able to service all of this debt and not have it impact its credit rating? Yeah, so that's a good question. And this is what distinguishes China, shall we say, from Russia or Argentina or Turkey or any developing emerging country that's gotten into trouble in recent years. These countries usually get into trouble because they they cannot generate the foreign exchange with which to repay or to pay debt service obligations to creditors who happen to be foreigners. So in China's case, this doesn't really crop up. I mean, it's not that China doesn't have any foreign debt. It's just that it's not that big. So in a way, through accounting regulations and through what we call the evergreening of loans. In other words, you know, the, the, the regulators can simply instruct the banks or have accounting governance regulations that basically don't require the banks to recognise bad debts on a time frame that we would normally think is normal or acceptable. So if you evergreen the loans and you say, well, let's pretend this bad debt doesn't really exist in 2021, but we'll leave it open for another five years. But, you know, in five years time, you might evergreen it by another five years and just roll it all forward into the future. And what you're doing really is you're going to hope that eventually the bad debt problem will go away and and growth will, will pay for it. But there's no precedent really for that happening. So that there is going to come a point where obviously, as I said, the debt is going to have to be paid for. It has to be accounted for. And the cost of that usually, if it isn't a financial crisis, is usually experienced in the form of uh, weaker and sometimes quite weak economic growth. China has been experiencing weakening economic growth in recent years, and that was even before the pandemic hit. And there's also been, you know, headlines written about China moving away from debt fueled growth. For example, in January, it was reported that railway investment was expected to fall this year as priorities are shifted elsewhere. Would you take those headlines at face value that the Chinese Communist Party understands the problems the fire is playing with? Or do you think that they're just headlines for now? Well, I think it's 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 tricky. I, I would say it's rather more nuanced than it is, you know, take it at face value. So since 2016-17, just before which China had its own sort of financial crisis, I think the government has been deadly serious about we can't go on like this. I think they honestly believe that 
if they allowed the financial system just, you know, total freedom to create credit in all sorts of egregious and uh, damaging ways, that there would be serious problems, which they might not be able to manage very well. So I actually believe, certainly, uh, I mean, the economic sort of guru and and overlord really in, in China is a man called Liu He, who has the ear of President Xi Jinping. President's not that interested in economics, as far as we can tell, but certainly this Liu He is, is very, very capable and um, and is very, very thoughtful. He's mostly got the ear of the president, but sometimes we're not always sure about that. But I think that it's fair to say that they they really try and want to de-risk the financial system. And, and certainly before the pandemic, they were making some headway in slowing down the growth of credit and removing some of the most obvious forms of, of risk taking, which were causing such problems. But it's quite difficult. It's like a drug, you know, to get to wean yourself off it. The easiest thing to do if you run into trouble, which obviously China did last year, is basically do what you do what you know, you know, which is if we just tread on the credit accelerator again, spend more money in infrastructure, build more houses, you know, we'll get through the next year. And of course, they managed to do that. So the acid test really, I think, is going to be during the coming, say, two to five years, when the pandemic bounces over and China's structural economic headwinds begin to blow again and economic growth slows, starts to slow down, what will the government do there? Will it bite its bottom lip and just allow the economy to slow down and try to reform for the longer term? Or will they fall back on the sort of tried and tested ways of, of pumping up growth? I think many people believe there's a suspicion that that option, even though they want to get rid of it, is still very much in the toolkit. So George, moving from the macro to the micro, I can understand how on a country level, this level of debt based on infrastructure spending is not a desirable thing. But for people, for the Chinese people, has it been an overall boon to their standard of living to have better roads and closer railways? Or are there actually, you know, design problems in, in, in the infrastructure spending as well. That is, maybe it's not value for money and it's not what people want because it's state-directed anyway. Oh, I think it's unquestionable, really, that people generally are better off for having better infrastructure than not having it. I mean, the, the problem is that better infrastructure and more infrastructure were always the answer to poverty or to economic development and rising prosperity, we wouldn't have the problems. We just go and build, build, build. The trouble is we can't really do that. So, for example, obviously we're in the United Kingdom. So, you know, you could ask the question, why is the United Kingdom richer than, say, Serbia or uh, Romania? And, you know, it's not the fact that we have more roads or more airports or Heathrow or more factories. I mean, these things are part of obviously being a rich country. But the reason is that we can use our capital and technology in a more productive way than 
poorer countries can. So, for example, if you took a Romanian or a Serbian engineer and brought them to work in the United Kingdom, they'd probably be more productive than they would be in their own country. And if you took a British engineer and you know he or she went to a poorer country, they probably wouldn't be as productive as they were in their home country. So it's the same with China. I mean, from a from a low starting point, you know, China has been able to enrich itself and its people by building productive infrastructure uh, that enable people to function and work more effectively than they did before. And that is something which they do value and they should. The trouble is that if you you know, if you have too many access points. So, for example, there are lots of examples of Chinese cities in the middle of the country and in the west of the country where you have new highways, new bridges, new airports, you know, new lots of things to get to the same place. And actually, nobody's using them. There are these famous examples that have been trotted out in China for quite a long time now about so-called ghost cities of new towns and cities with apartment blocks and offices that are empty. And the the argument says, well, the people will come eventually. Well, it's now been like five to ten years and the people still haven't arrived. And it's it's basically overcapacity. And, you know, that overcapacity obviously is not good. So in a way, I would say there's no argument about the fact that people profit and benefit from having good working infrastructure, internet access, you know, for almost the whole country. But there are aspects of this that also have a darker side and which, you know, can impose costs on the country in the medium to longer term. You were were talking earlier about it not being entirely clear why the CCP in particular is going for infrastructure-led growth. I wonder if... In my layman's coming to this topic, I wonder if two things contribute. One is the employment of these construction projects. You've got massive state-owned enterprises in commanding teams of people building railway stations overnight. And one video that I saw, you know, literally showed this kind of thing happening, which also touches on a second point, which is that it's a point of national pride, that it's a obvious symbol of China's growth. It's clear to people who use those trains and roads and whatever it is that China has developed, even if it might not be the best value for money project they can they can find. So I think, is it to do with employment and is it to do with national pride? And that is what contributes to the addictiveness of this. Oh, I think both of those are pretty important. I mean, the the employment generative you know, capacity of big infrastructure projects, you know, is self-evident. And it's uh, it's really important. Um, I mean, employment is probably, you know, a, a bigger sensitivity for China's government nowadays than, than any kind of randomly generated GDP number, actually. Because obviously, you know, you need people in adequate, satisfactory jobs to, um, uh, well, if you want to keep social order and social peace, I mean, it's really important. So big yes to that. National pride also, I mean, no question about it. I mean, the, you know, to be able to uh, showcase, so to speak, as China did during the Olympic Games and, you know, may do next year in the Winter Olympics, if all goes according to plan. I mean, this uh, these things are really important. I still think that they're kind of side effects, really. I think the the principal reason that people, and in this case, you know, China, 
want infrastructure is because you can't really, it, it's, it's a sine qua non, it's an absolute essential, you know, to have a vibrant economy where, you know, particularly in a kind of data-driven world that we're in, where there are high levels of connectivity and where things work. So I, it's, you know, I'm not saying that if you reach a certain level that you should not have any more infrastructure. The question is, is it commercial? Does it give a real return back to society? Or is it just, as the Japanese used to say during the 1990s and the 2000s, bridges to nowhere? You know, they're basically construction projects that have no purpose. They're just sunken costs. So that then brings us to, you know, my final part of the podcast, which is just what the West should learn from the Chinese experience. Obviously, we're talking about this because Joe Biden has had his phone call with President Xi, after which he said that the Chinese have spent so much on infrastructure, they're going to steal our lunch. And I, I did a bit, a little bit of digging in here just on motorways. China currently has 93,000 miles. The US has 67,000 miles. And China is building 45,000, 425,000 miles each year, whereas the the US is building less than 800 miles each year, and there are similar land areas. So clearly, in- infrastructure hasn't really been concentrated on, at least in America, and, and I would say in the UK as well. <laughs> so do you think that that is a model for growth, at least to some extent, for the West? Is Biden right in thinking we need to learn from the Chinese experience? Yes, to, to a degree, I do think it is. And I think we, we certainly do. And the United States has also what we could call an infrastructure deficit. You know, there's, it's just years of neglect, really, and of it not being a priority. But I think that it feels like we're beginning to take a leaf a little bit out of China's book here, and, and not inappropriately, right? Because nowadays, uh, I mean, this is a different topic, but nowadays, Economic security and national security, which are the kind of buzz phrases that everybody's using, they they are really two sides of the same coin. And China has been using, you know, probably quite blatant forms of economic nationalism to basically create a platform on which it has built its global ambition. And I think that the United States, uh, by contrast, has certainly allowed its infrastructure to to decay and you know a lot of america's infrastructure was state of the art 30 40 50 years ago but it isn't anymore so i think it's quite important that that the biden administration does uh, carry through its intent at least of refreshing and and rebooting shall we say america's infrastructure particularly its digital infrastructure which is obviously you know probably as important, if not more important, than roads, sports, railways, and uh, um, high-speed rail, and so on. Really important, because economic structure, strengths, and assets really are going to become uh, much more important on the kind of the balance sheet in the future, I think. Is that something that America can afford, uh, considering the pandemic, as well as just generally the price that China has paid for that sort of infrastructure? Well, historically, the I mean, the obviously the the central government, the general government in the United States and in other Western countries, I mean, has played a role, not nearly as big a role as China's government has in in China, and we would also probably uh, do or put a lot of this out to to tender and you know get private companies to do it. 
quite what the appropriate mix is, I think, will depend on project by project. But I don't, you know, I mean, I think it's it's right to say, can we afford it? And obviously, you know, the trouble with democracies is you can have a very, very long process of different people's interests battling to and fro, you know, the, the costs and benefits of doing different projects and doing them different ways. But we must get over this. And actually, we must try and find ways of funding the things that we need to do, because, you know, I just don't think there's any question, really, that um, that our economic security is something which we're going to take much more seriously, and it's going to cost us. Here's a flippant question. China obviously has taken its infrastructural projects and companies all over the world, not least because of Belt and Road Initiative. Do you think that America would be contracting any Chinese companies to build that infrastructure? Very doubtful. Um, but <laughs> uh, very doubtful. I mean, there are. I'm not. I'm not saying there won't be areas of collaboration between the Biden administration and Xi Jinping's China. But um, I mean, econ- that sort of economic collaboration, I think, is probably quite low down the list. I do think it's quite interesting, though, that China's kind of infrastructure financing across the Belt and Road, now joined by both uh, what they call the Digital Silk Road and the Health Silk Road, which are different ways of of um, creating soft power, shall we say, in the Belt and Road universe. That sort of challenge has looks as though it started to be joined by countries like Japan, India, uh, Australia, the United States, members of the so-called quadrilateral you know, security alliance or whatever it's called. And um, yeah, we might see more of this actually in the future. Um, I don't think it'll be on the scale that China is doing for a while. But um, this sort of gesture in terms of trying to strengthen alliances in Asia, for example, I think is something that might happen. We might see more of that. Yeah. George Magnus, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.